So Titus chapter 1, what we're in the middle of going through right now, is really laying a foundation. Now, I don't know, there was a point in time in my life, I, I graduated from the University of Texas in 1984 with a degree in business, and um, my very first job when I was 16 years old, my very first job was working for a fence company, Parsons Fence Company, there in Victoria, and Mr. Parsons said he was an old man and had had this company for a long time, and he was old school. And um, so I remember the very first day, we had these big old one-ton flatbed trucks. And when I say he was old school, Mr. Parsons would have a big dump truck come in, he'd dump a load of gravel, he'd dump a load of sand. And then he had this old barn that had pallets and pallets of cement powder in there. And each one of those bags weighed 100 pounds. And so every morning, we'd get there, we'd have our fence jobs laid out, and we'd have to load that one-ton truck with sand and gravel. You know how we loaded it? He didn't have a tractor with a front-end loader. He had people with shovels. And you'd load gravel, and you'd load sand. And then he had a guy in the barn there that was at the pallets of cement, and that guy would take a bag, a 100-pound bag of cement, and he'd plop it on your shoulders, and you'd carry that bag of cement, and you'd load up however many bags of cement we needed for however many fence jobs we were doing that day. And I remember the very first day, now, I weigh 100, this morning, I weighed 187 pounds, but back when I was 16 years old, I might have weighed 150 pounds if I was wet. So I get in there, and I walk in that barn, and we're loading cement. And that brother, uh, he, I don't know if he's a brother or not, but <laughs> he's loading that cement. He takes that bag of cement. I mean, he plops it down on top of me. And I'm like, <laughs> and they're just laughing, you know. It's like, here's the summer help. We're going we're gonna to break the summer help in. So I'm struggling to, you know, and they're going, don't drop it, don't drop it, it'll break, it'll break. You know, I'm struggling to get that bag of semen over to that truck and get up on the truck. And, you know, uh, so I, I get this job and I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. And when I graduate from UT, you know, my, my goal is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a bunch of money, right? I got a business degree from one of the best business colleges in the country. And, you know, what? my very first, well... Really, my first job wasn't, my first job got me saved. It was really the instrument God used to, to, to really save me. But right after that, you know what I did? I went to work for a commercial fence company. And the guy said, you ever, you know anything about fence? I said, well, it just so happens when I was 16, I worked one summer for a fence company. I said, but I didn't really build much fence. I, I said, I hauled hay most summer, most of the summer. Because Mr. Parsons was also a rancher. I think he saw that I wasn't real good at carrying bags of cement and I wasn't real proficient with the come-along, you know. I never could figure those things out very well. He said, you know what you'd be good at? You'd be good at throwing hay up on a trailer. So I spent all summer tossing hay up on a trailer and then stacking it in the barn. So I, I get out of school, and I go to work, lo and behold, for a commercial fence company. I do that for a while. And this brother, he, he was, a, he was a, really a man of God. And you talk about modeling. Now, here I am, newly saved, 
I didn't have a church. I didn't grow up in church. Didn't know anyone that went to church except my brother who was Catholic. And he lived three hours away from me. And so I go to work for this guy. And this guy is truly a man of God. So I'd come to work every day for him. I'd walk in his office. He'd have his Bible open. He started every day in the Word of God, praying and studying. And I was living every way but like a Christian, I'll just tell you. There was nothing about my life that would say, hey, Jeff Ripple is a Christian. But I knew, I knew I was saved. I knew God saved me. So I come to work every day, and this guy's just, he, he's not preaching to me. He's not condemning me. He's not judging me. He is living this life. And he, he's not compromising. I mean, he was a very uncompromising man, but his life just communicated truth. And he would share the scripture with me. We, he, he would pray with me. And, and I never felt condemned around him, but I always felt convicted. Because his life spoke something that my life didn't speak. And it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I mean, God just convicted me. I worked for him a while. Then I went to work for another company. There is a point to the story. I went to work for this other company. And lo and behold, I was doing foundation design and engineering. It was someone in my family that... that, that, uh, I don't know if they were technically owners, but they were partners. Uh, I will just say that in this business. And uh, I never didn't know anything about foundations and foundation design and engineering. And so in both of these cases, I was doing what I swore I would never do. When I went to UT and I went to the business school and I got, decided to get my major in marketing, the statistic was that over 90% of all marketing majors end up in sales. And I said, you know what? I am not. I'm not going to be a salesman. I'm not going to be a salesman. I'm not going to be a salesman. Well, guess what? It's all I've ever done. It's all I've ever done was was sales. So I'm selling now foundations. You ever tried? Who has ever tried to sell a foundation? See, foundations are foundations are things that a lot of people don't think about. Paul is laying a foundation here in Titus. Chapter 1 is the foundation. And and though I sold foundations, and though I worked in an office and I drew up plans, and I didn't actually dig the trenches and and do all the the manual work, I, I was around foundations a lot. And I knew what it took to establish a firm foundation. And I'll tell you right now, laying a foundation is hard, dirty work. It often involves blood, sweat, and tears. I remember one of the stories, the guy that owned our company, he would faint at the sight of blood, literally. And they were out on a big commercial job. It was actually a church they were building up in Temple. And we, we had uh, sold the, the, the design work and did all the design work on this big church. And uh, there was a post-tension company, and they were pulling those cables. And if you know anything about those cables, um, they're out there pulling this cable, getting ready to, to stretch it out and lay it. And something happened, and it came loose from one end. It was a big, long run of cable. This guy was standing there, and uh, that cable broke loose, and it 
starts curling up. Well, it, when it curled up, it went by this guy real fast, and it just, like, hit him. And it, it he just starts bleeding because it, it really hurt him. It, dan- it cut him. And this guy's bleeding, and the owner of the company's out standing next to this guy, and this guy gets hit by this cable, and he just starts bleeding. And then the, the, the guy just, he like faints. He just falls out. It's not really the thing you want to do when you're out on a construction job is faint, you know. But it was kind of funny. And, uh, I, well, it probably wasn't funny at the time, but it, it was funny afterwards. So, you know, the work of, of laying a foundation really is, is hard. It's hard work. It requires the exertion of a lot of energy. And you really need to be painstaking in the way that you do your work. And every foundation we designed was designed based on the soil conditions that we were building upon. And so when you think about a foundation... If you've ever walked into a house, it's never the foundation that you are, you know, excited about. You're excited about the woodwork, you might be excited about the paint, you might be excited about all of the the things that are built upon the foundation, but no one walks up and says, man, that's an awesome looking foundation, that's the most beautiful foundation I've ever seen, because, you know why? Because you you don't see the foundation, you don't see it, everything is built upon it, I mean, you got... This is a concrete slab. I mean, we pulled our carpet up and we stained this floor. This is the foundation. But in most of your homes, you got carpet, you got laminate, you got, well, you got something there. And the foundation is just something you don't pay a lot of attention to until something goes wrong. How many of you have ever had to pay tens of thousands of dollars to have your foundation repaired on your house? Yeah, it's not a, it's not a good thing. You'll pay as much to get your foundation repaired or more than you, than you will have paid to lay it to begin with. And so if, we, if, if it's laid right to begin with, a lot, then we won't have these issues. That's, what, that's, that's the company that I worked for at one time, that we made sure that the foundation was designed right and laid right so that 20, 30 years from the time that person bought that house, they weren't going to have foundation issues because the soil that it was built on is really horrible. So you got to build your foundation accordingly. So the, the foundation is the least glamorous. It's the most inconspicuous part of the structure of the house. But it's absolutely the most important part of a structure because If that foundation doesn't endure the test of time, then guess what? That structure is not going to endure the test of time. And so Paul is laying a foundation here for Titus, helping him understand the importance of these things. Now, chapter 1 is not very glamorous. It's not very exciting. As a matter of fact, it's kind of like blood, sweat, and tears. This is the hard work that Paul is commanding Timothy to do so that the church in Crete can be built on something sound and something solid. This is what the church in America must get back to, is establishing herself on things that are sound and solid, so that the church is going to stand the test of time. Now i got news for you, the church is going to stand the test of time, because Jesus promised that it would. 
But that doesn't mean everything we build and everything we do is going to stand the test of time. Amen? And the test is going to be how well we lay our foundations here. So, this is the foundation of this book. And it's important that we take the time to to give attention to it as we build upon it. And then we're going to get to chapter 2 and we're going to we're going to kind of shift gears and we're going to get more into the structure of this thing that, that is being established and being built here. Amen? All right, so we've gone through. Let's, let's read chapter 1. Let's read verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. That you should set in order. What did, think about that phrase, that you should set in order. There is an order of things. There is a certain way things are supposed to be set and a certain way things are supposed to be done. When we would design a foundation, we would look at what was being built and what it was being built upon. And what was being built and what was being built upon determined how we would set the order of that foundation. How many beams do we need? How deep do those beams need to be? How wide do those beams need to be? How, what is the, the thickness or the diameter of the rebar that's going to go in those beams? And how many levels, how much rebar we're going to put? If you've ever seen, if you've ever built a house or you've ever been around building a house, you should take the time to see how a foundation is designed and how it's laid out. It's very important. And so there is an order that needs to be set. And so this is what Paul is telling Timothy to do. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So Paul addressed very specific issues and very specific commands to Titus, such as, we go back to verse 1, he says, he talks about, he addresses the faith of God's elect. Not just any faith, but the faith. There is a specific faith that God's elect has. He talked about the acknowledgement of the truth. All of these words have the definite article in front of them. In other words, it's not just any truth, because there's not... A bunch of truths. Do you guys understand this? There's not a bunch of truths. There's only one truth. The truth. That's why the definite article is there. The acknowledgement of the truth from that that comes from, that emanates from what? The faith. He spoke of godliness as a lifestyle manifest through the faith of God's elect. So if we are people of the faith, acknowledging the truth, there should be a godliness that comes out of our lives, that's manifest through our lives as an acknowledgement of that truth and that faith. He speaks of a hope, a sure promise of eternal life that we have, where? In Christ Jesus. He speaks of the manifestation of God's Word through the preaching of the Word, through preaching That the word of God would be manifest. He commanded the preaching of the word that it would be manifest. That's in verse 3. In verse 5, he commands Titus to set things in order that are lacking. 
How is he setting them in order? He's setting them in order according to the common faith of the gospel of Christ. The gospel, the faith, this is what is going to determine the order. The command, he commands the appointment of qualified elders grounded in the faith and in sound doctrine, holding fast the faithful word as they have been taught. Verses 5 through 9, he he deals with this. And he commands that they would exhort and convict those who contradict sound doctrine. This is the foundation. These are things that, that aren't real glamorous. They're kind of hard. Sometimes they're not real pleasant to carry out, but they're absolutely necessary if we're going to build on the right foundation and what we're building is going to be lasting. So Paul says in verse 5, he says, Appoint elders in every city as I have commanded you. It wasn't Titus's idea. It was Paul's commandment that he appoint elders, that this pastor appoint these elders. Why? To set the things in order that are lacking. So the command to appoint elders was to uphold the things set in order. Paul says, Titus, set the things that are in order that are lacking and appoint elders. To what end? That those things that you set in order can be upheld so that we don't lose the order, so that we don't lose the things that we have set, because we're building something here, we're establishing something here. Holding fast, in verse 9, he says of these leaders, holding fast the faithful word, in other words, nurturing and protecting the flock as it was being established and multiplied. These men are called overseers, shepherds. This is, this is what the Greek word is communicating. So they're nurturing and they're protecting the flock, maintaining those things that have been set in order. Those elders who were appointed by Titus had to be men who met the specific qualifications laid out by the Apostle Paul. Those qualifications as listed in verses 6 through 9, I'm just going to go through them real quick. We're not going to belabor this point. He said they must be blameless, verses 6 and 7. They must be the husband of one wife, verse 6. They must have faithful children, verse 6. In 1 Timothy, he also lays these out in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verses 4 through 5, expounding on this, this thing about those who, one who rules his house well. If he cannot rule his own house, how can he take care of the house of God? Not self-willed, verse 7. That's true for all of us, isn't it? Because we're not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus. This Christianity that we're talking about, this faith that we're talking about, is not about our will. It's about His will. Even Jesus, the Son of God, said, Nevertheless, not my will, but what? Thy will be done, Father. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, reverent, just, holy, self-controlled. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. So we must be teachable. Able by sound doctrine to exhort 
and convict those who contradict. Why did Paul stress all of these things about the faith, about the truth, about godliness, the preaching of the word, the need to set in order what is lacking to appoint qualified men? Why did Paul, why is this what he's laying out? This is the foundation he's laying out. What was it that motivated Paul to lay these things out, to stress these things, to specifically call these things out? Well, we find the answer in verses 10 and 11. So let's, let's go down to verses 10 and 11 and let's look at these verses. Verse 10, let's, let's start in verse 9. Speaking of these men, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are four, you need to know what the, the, the four is there for, right? When you see the word four, learn what the four is there for, okay? Four, there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. This is why Paul says, Titus, set in order what is lacking, appoint these guys, this is the qualification, and this is why you need to do this. For there are those out there, many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. So let's look at this word insubordinate, for there are many insubordinate. The word insubordinate here means unruly. Now we need to understand, who is Paul talking about? Who are the insubordinate? Well, we might think at first glance he's talking about people out in the world, but he's not. He's not talking about people out in the world. Paul is not here to correct people in the world. The insubordinate are those This word means unruly. It's applied here to those who have professed faith in Christ and so have professed to come under His rule but are not living in such a way. Okay, so the problem is that these insubordinate people have professed faith with their mouth but have not demonstrated true faith with their deeds. So it's kind of like me, you know. I can tell you I'm a believer all day long. I'm a faithful believer. But if I'm out running around on my wife, how faithful am I, right? My, it doesn't matter what comes out of my mouth. My, my deeds are going to demonstrate something, and it, you're going to know, hey, Pastor Jeff, I hear what you're saying, but man, you're walking, you're talking, they're not quite lining up here. This is exactly what Paul is dealing with in the church. And he's telling this pastor, Titus, you've got to deal with this, man, because whole households are being subverted by these people who profess one thing with their mouth, but with their deeds, they are demonstrating something else. They are unruly, self-willed, and insubordinate to the rule of Christ. And in their insubordination to God, they subvert others. That word subvert means to overturn. And so Paul is specifying those who are unruly, those who are not subordinate to Christ, to the common faith. They're not They're not coming under the rule of the common faith. Well, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in Krishna. And I think Krishna is just as legitimate way to get to heaven as Jesus is. I just happen to worship 
in a Christian church. I actually knew a guy, would have lunch with him on a regular basis, who believed that. He said, well, our church has got a Christian bent. He said, but we believe all paths lead to God. The Buddhist, the Hindu, it doesn't matter. We just We happen to focus on Jesus, but it's okay. We've got people who focus on Buddha and focus on Krishna. It's, it's, it doesn't matter. All paths lead to God. Well, out of his mouth, he confesses to be a believer. He professes faith, but there's, there's something that's not lining up. Can't, you can't believe. You can't, the, both of those things can't be true. If that's true, then Jesus is a liar, and Jesus is not a liar. And so he's talking about those who are not subordinate to Christ, to the common faith, or to sound doctrine in the teachings of the Scripture. These are in rebellion, though with their mouths they profess the knowledge and the rule of God. This is what John talks about when he says, you can't love God and hate your brother. If you hate your brother, the love of God cannot be in you. And so this is where our, we always say this, right? Walk the walk the walk and talk the talk. Well, listen, if we're going to talk the talk, we need to walk the walk. Our talk and our walk need to correspond to one another. And this is what Paul is instructing Titus about. So he says, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers. This phrase, idle talkers, refers to, it literally means vain talkers. So not only are they insubordinate, but they are idle talkers. They're vain talkers. It means their words are empty. They're profitless and void of power. Why are their words empty, profitless, and void of power? Is it because they're not very charismatic speakers? Is it because they don't use enough stories and they don't use enough humor when they're communicating their message? No, see, that has nothing to do with it. Paul says the reason they're idle talkers, vain talkers, their words are empty and void of power is because their words are not rooted and grounded, what? In the truth, in the gospel. These guys aren't teaching and preaching the gospel. They're preaching and teaching something contrary. They're saying one thing, but they're living another thing. That means their words are empty. You know, uh, we see this a lot in this, what we call the cycle of abuse, where a man physically abuses his wife. And the, the wife will finally, maybe call and report him, and the police will get involved. And then the wife will say, well, you know, I don't want to press charges. No, you know what? I, I don't want to do anything because he apologized and he said he loves me. And I believe him. Well, you're going to believe his words. You're going to believe his consistent actions. This is the, this is the fifth time that he's put you in the hospital, and you keep going back. Do you, do you really believe his words, or do his actions speak louder than his words? It's tragic how common those situations are, and that's a very graphic example. But this is what Paul is telling Titus. Titus, it doesn't matter what their words are. Their actions are speaking something else. And so you've got to set this in order. You've got to do this, because if you don't lay this foundation right to begin with, it doesn't matter what you build on top of it. It's not going to last. So these empty, profitless words, void of power, it is the gospel. Listen, it is the gospel which is the power of God. There's nothing powerful about moving people with our words. If I move you to some emotional experience, that's, hey, great. 
But there's nothing powerful about that. Because that experience is going to come and go. It doesn't really matter. But I'll tell you what is powerful. And this is what the Bible communicates to us. This is what the Scripture teaches us. It's when the gospel moves people, that's when something is truly powerful. It is the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. My words cannot move you to salvation, but the gospel can save you. I can make you feel guilty about your sin. I can even make you feel sorry about your sin. But if the gospel doesn't touch and transform your heart, your guilt and worldly sorrow won't do anything for you. You'll become hardened to that, and pretty soon you just won't care. This is what Romans 1 and 2 teach us. But listen, if we'll be faithful to preach and teach and live the gospel and communicate, doesn't matter how effectively or how eloquently we communicate the words, if we will communicate the gospel of God, I'm telling you what, the power of God will touch somebody. We'll transform somebody. We'll save somebody. You're not going to do that through the power of your words. But listen, God's word is powerful. This is why Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, I didn't come to you in words of wisdom. I didn't come to you in eloquent speech. I came to you in fear and in trembling. I mean, if we advertise and say, hey, we're going to have a special speaker, and he's known worldwide to, to be the, the worst speaker you've ever heard, he stutters, he's fearful, he, he trembles, he, he just not really a good speaker at all. How many of you guys want to sign up to come to that? Oh man, I don't want to come to that. See, we're so moved by humanity, but we need to, we need to be moved by God. We need to be moved not by the words of men, but by the word of God. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. And this is why Paul is telling Titus, Titus, what you've got to do is begin to powerfully preach the gospel. Powerfully preach doesn't mean how well he does it. It is how faithfully he executes it. How faithful he is to the word and to the sound doctrine that Paul had taught him. Are you in the book, Titus? Are you in the scripture? Are you preaching and teaching God's word, not your own. Don't be moved by men and don't try to move men with your words, but be a faithful preacher and teacher of the gospel. Live the gospel and model the gospel. We're going to see in Romans, in uh, Titus chapter 2 here, this is what Paul is telling them to do. Be a model, a pattern of good works. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers. Paul calls these deceivers, contrasting When he says they're deceivers, he's contrasting their words with their conduct. Through their insubordinate behavior and their vain talk, they not only deceive others, but they deceive themselves. James 1.26, here's the principle. James James writes in 1 James 1, verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. We can talk and say things to the point that we deceive our own heart. Don't do that, church. Don't deceive your own heart. Let this word right here, let this word be the plumb line that determines whether you got it straight or not. Not whether it feels straight, not whether it feels good, but what does this thing right here, 
This is our square. This is our plumb line. This is our level. This is what determines whether the bubble is in the middle or not. Especially those of the circumcision. So Paul's talking about those who, those legalists who demanded that the sal- that salvation was not by faith alone, but it also required the works of the law. So people come to you and say, well, yeah, I know you're saved, but listen, you've also got to, no, you've got to trust in Christ is what you've got to do. You must trust in him and you must be born again. And if you are truly born again and you have been changed and transformed and given a new nature, if Christ is now in you, if he lives in you, and that's your life, then you know what? That's what's going to begin to come out of you. And so Paul says in Romans 3, 20 through 23, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. Jew or Gentile doesn't matter anymore. There is no difference for all. Jew and Gentile have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. Amen. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. If I am justified by faith, what's going to come out of my life? If I'm a good tree, am I going to produce fruit? Yeah. So true faith produces what? It produces faithful works. I'm not saved by my faithful works, but because of my salvation, faithful works are going to be manifest in my life, right? I'm going to be a faithful person. The gospel is not salvation by works. That's not good news. Good news is salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Paul goes on and he says in verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. So Paul has commanded Titus to set in order the things that were lacking, to speak things which are proper for sound doctrine, or or to preach and teach the gospel, to appoint these leaders sound in doctrine and godliness, to stop the mouths of those vain talkers who are subverting whole households and teaching things which they ought not. And this is why Paul commanded Titus to do these things, to appoint elders, to oversee, and to protect the flock of God, to hold fast the faithful word, and by sound doctrine to exhort and to convict those who contradict, or those who, that word contradict means those who speak against the truth. Listen, when the Mormons come to your door and tell you that you really are the Jehovah's Witness, well, you really aren't saved unless you become one of us. It doesn't make them mean and evil people, but they are speaking against the truth. They may be absolutely, I believe, totally and completely deceived into thinking that what they're teaching is true. But, but how do we know that it's not? Because it doesn't line up with this. It's not level. It's not square. It's not straight. It's not. This is what determines that. And so, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households. 
that phrase, whose mouths must be stopped, literally is to put something over the mouth. In other words, put something over their mouth and stop them from speaking the things that they are speaking. Why? Because their speaking is causing whole households, Paul says, to be overturned. This is what the insubordinate or the unruly do. They use empty words, they deceive and are themselves deceived and and in the process overturned. So go back to the garden, think about Adam and Eve. God says, hey, here's this garden, you can eat of every tree except the one in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. That was the word of God, right? What does Satan do? Here comes Satan. And he says, did God really say, didn't God say that you could eat from every tree? And Eve says, oh no, God says that we can eat from every tree, yes, but, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden, we are not to eat of that tree because in the day that we eat of it, we will surely die. And Satan says, you know, God just doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he doesn't want you to become like him. You know, he's jealous that way. <laughs> he doesn't want you to become like him. And, and you know what? There was truth in what Satan said. He, God did not want them to have that knowledge. Why? Because they didn't need that knowledge. What knowledge did they have? They had the knowledge of God. They had everything they needed. So it wasn't that everything he said was a lie. It's that he knew how to twist the truth to subvert, to overturn. But he was not true. Jesus said he is the father of lies. Though he can speak true things, right? How many of you know that I might speak something that's factual? The doctor might come to you and say, you have cancer and and you're going to die. That might be factual, but but it's not the truth. It might be a fact that I have cancer, but the truth is God is my healer. Now, does that mean that I'm not that I'm going to get healed here? It may, or you know what? It may not. But the truth is, you are healed. The truth is, you will not die. Because in Christ, you have what? You have eternal life. And the death of your physical body is not your death. Because if you're in Christ, you already died with Christ. You were already crucified with him. Now you live in him. And the death of this body is really not, it's just liberation for who you really are. To experience what Christ has already paid for. And God knows the day. The doctor doesn't know. The doctor might say, you're going to die in two weeks. You know what? You might live 22 more years because the doctor doesn't determine whether you live or die. God does. So we put our trust in God. We thank God for what doctors can do, right? But we put our trust ultimately in God because he is the author of life. teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. This calls into question the motivation of those teaching things which they ought not to teach. For dishonest gain can apply to many things, 
Why are we teaching the things we teach and doing the things that we're doing? That's a good question. Those are things that we need to ask ourselves. It's like when you worship God by giving. Are you giving because you're hoping that in giving you're going to get something back from God? There is the principle of sowing and reaping, right? I mean, no farmer puts seed in the ground with, without the expectation to get a harvest. So there's nothing inherently evil about planting seed and expecting a harvest. But what is the real motivation of our heart when we worship God, whether it's in our singing, in our giving, in being here as we study and hear the Word of God together? What's the motivation of our heart in the things that we're doing? Is it for His name's sake or is it for our own? Well, the Bible says that we should do what we do for His name's sake. So as we're saying the things that we're saying and And doing the things that we do, are we doing it for His namesake? What if no one ever knows what you've done for His namesake? Are you okay with that? Are you okay if you sacrifice greatly for His namesake and no one on this earth ever knows the extent of your sacrifice? Are you okay with that? Because God knows. So Paul is writing this letter to Titus so that Titus will understand the charge that's been committed to him to oversee the flock, to protect it from those who are more concerned about their own names and their own appetites than God's. Those of the circumcision. You've got to do it this way. You've got to do it our way. It's got to be this way. Were they more concerned about Christ or were they more concerned about having it their way, doing it their way? And we need to be people like Jesus who said, you know what? I was with Pastor Jack and some of us went down to a retreat this weekend, had a great time. And one of the things Jack said, he said, you know, I don't like every command God gives. He said, I disagree with some of them. He said, but you know what? It's not my place. It's not my place because they're God's commands. There's, there's things in here that I don't understand why God did them the way he did. I don't understand why he says the things he says. But you know what? It's not up to me. What, what's charged, what charge I have is obey my commands. He didn't say like everything I command you to do. He said obey my commands. But you know what? If we'll be faithful in obeying his commands, if we'll be faithful in seeking to please Him, you know what? I think we'll come to a place where we will really find our pleasure in that. And the things that we don't like and the things that we don't understand, you know what? We'll just get, you know, it's okay, God. One day, you know, if you reveal it to me, great. If you don't, great too. So he goes on. Look look what he says in verse 13. Well, he says this. In verse 12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. That's kind of harsh, isn't it? Paul's being serious here. He said, listen, you Cretans, you Cretans are, they, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. How'd you like to go to church and hear Pastor Titus gets up and says, you Cretans are liars, lazy gluttons, and evil beasts. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. 
How, how many people you think would come back the next Sunday? <laughs> uh, but I'm going to tell you what. We live, we live in a different day. If we did that today, they probably none of them would come back. But the question is, listen, Paul is commanding, rebuke them sharply for that they may be sound in the faith. That they may be sound in the faith. Are you willing to let the word of God rebuke you and, and maybe rebuke you sharply that you may become sound in the faith? Are you willing? Are you willing to receive that from God? Are you willing to let Him dig a little bit deeper and put a little bit more in there to make sure this thing is shored up the way it's supposed to be? Might be painful now, it might be hard now, but I'm telling you what, it's going to be profitable for you one day. See, if we only look at how hard it is now, we don't see the profit that's going to come as a result of what we're enduring. This is, why, this is why Paul tells Titus, he said, hey, don't hold back. Tell it like it is, Titus. This is true testimony. They are liars, lazy gluttons, and evil beasts. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He said, if you withhold from them, Titus, you're not helping them, you're hurting them. You need to tell it like it is so that they will become sound in the faith. I can just hear Titus going, but, but Paul, what if, if I do that, they won't come back. Paul says, that's okay. Listen, the ones that will remain will become sound in the faith, and then we can build something. That's a hard word. That's a hard word. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Paul said, Titus, don't, don't, give, don't give heed to those things. And don't let those people give heed to those things, turning from the truth. He says in verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. This goes back to an attitude of the heart. But even their mind and their conscience are defiled. Verse 16, and we're ending right here. They profess to know God. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Their words may sound right. They may seem true. They may sound sweet. They may play on your weakness and on your emotion, just like Satan did with Eve. And she says, ooh, it does look good. Ooh, it does look like it would taste good. It is pretty. It looks like it would make me wise. Maybe I should have a bite of that. But their actions are actually overturning households, Paul says. But call, Paul calls this what it is. He says it's abominable, disobedient, and disqualifying. Now, this is the foundation now, if the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, don't call them an abomination, okay? If someone professing to be a believer comes to you and is encouraging you in things and you say, you know what, that just doesn't line up. You know, you don't have to call them uh, uh, an abomination. You don't have to. But, but at the same time, don't be afraid out of love to speak the truth. 
and to say in love and in humility, you know, brother, you know, sister, you know, hey, do you know that what you're doing, what you believe is not true? Do you, do you know that it's contrary to the scripture? That you're actually doing more harm than good? That you are violating? There's nothing wrong. There's a way you can do that where it should come across as, as love, right? Now, let me ask you this, parents. Which child is more blessed? The child whose parents will paddle the, the, the bottom of the child who continually goes out in the street to play in traffic? Or the, the child whose parents says, well, you know, I just can't control my kid. I, I just let them do what they want to do. Which, which child is more blessed? We know which one's more blessed, right? At the moment that that child is playing in traffic, one parent is spanking their butts, the other parent's like, oh, I just can't do anything. I, I just don't know what to do. I'll throw my hands up. You know, I just don't even try anymore. At that moment, that child that's getting his way, doing what he wants to do, guess who thinks they're more blessed? The child who's getting his way, doing what he wants to do, thinks he's more blessed. But you know what's going to happen in time? In time, the truth's going to come out, and we're going to see that a child left to himself brings dishonor. You know, as a, as a police chaplain and, and, and people that are involved in, in law enforcement, you know, a lot of the people that are dealt with are people that were left to themselves. And they, they loved it at the time, but somehow it always catches up. You know, who is more blessed is the one who, in love, that parent comes and may have to offer a sharp rebuke. But they do it out of love because they, they do love. So don't be afraid to speak the truth in love when necessary. But don't forget to speak the truth in love. Amen? Let's all stand. Now next week we're going we're gonna to get into Titus chapter 2. And uh, we're going to talk, we're going to get past the foundation now. We're going to begin to talk about some other things um, that really still do have to do with, with foundational things, but, but if we don't understand some of these foundational things, we'll never be able to get to the other parts and effectively do the other parts and see them achieve their purpose. Amen? Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you love us. And Lord, you demonstrate that love not only by dying for us, but God, you have given us your word, preserved your word, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have blessed us with. You poured out the Spirit of God that teaches us and leads us and guides us in truth. And Lord, if there's anyone here today, Lord, that has never experienced that, Father, I pray that you would move on their hearts by your Spirit to trust you, Lord Jesus, as the only way to salvation. Father, as children, I pray that you would help us to learn and to grow in the knowledge of Christ, that you would help us to be teachable, embracing even the difficult things that you have for us, even those times when, Lord, your word would rebuke us sharp, sharply. Help us to embrace that for our good as you establish us and grow us up as the author and finisher of our faith. Well, Lord, we ask these things in your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. Bless the food that we're going to partake of next door. Father, thank you for the hands that prepared it. And thank you for the proceeds that are going to go to bless our missionaries, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, God bless you. Go. Uh, if you can stay with us, we would love it. Just go have a seat at one of the tables, and then we'll get everything ready. God bless you.